as I look forward to Easter weekend, I, it's, it's weird and it's hard to put a finger on exactly why it feels like this, but there's an energy in the air, uh, at least from the pastor's perspective, that feels unfamiliar because it's been so long. Um, you know, it's been since uh, 2019 that we gathered together on Holy Week. And the world was a very different place in 2019 than it is now. I'll talk a little bit more about that on, on Sunday, but, but man, it feels good to be together. And I hope that you've already reserved your spots, whether you're, uh, again, watching online, planning to join us in person on Sunday or here, those spots are filling up and we need everybody to RSVP for the indoor services, okay? So 9.45 and 11 are already booked up, y'all. Sorry if you're planning on that one and you haven't RSVP'd yet. 8.30, there's still some spots. Uh, the sunrise service out front, it's not going to be on the big field. It's going to be right out here. It's going to be beautiful. Right out here next to the columbarium out there and all that, it's going to be really special. And the weather's going to be nice. So 7 a.m., early risers, we'll see you out there. Um, or uh, at Timber Grove at 9.45, there's plenty of space available for the first ever Easter at our Timber Grove campus uh, at 8200 Washington. It's going to be awesome. And then our after party, y'all. Very different thing happening in the afternoon. That's not just another service. Like put your Sunday best on in the morning and then go home, take it off, eat something and take a nap and then wear your sweatpants and come back. It doesn't even matter what you're wearing. It's a party. It's an outdoor after party. We're going to have some storytelling, some testifying, some live music. Outside, beautiful weather, I think, again, on the front lawn, beautiful front lawn at our Timber Grove campus, 6 p.m. on Easter Sunday, All right? So this is the one service that we do that's uh, traditional at the story. And I don't just mean that the, the songs or hymns or whatever. I, I mean that this is our one tradition where the, the function or, or the bones of the service don't really change from year to year. I don't change the message you're about to hear from year to year. Easter, I try to find the new way to preach Easter every year. <laughs> and it's a lot harder than it sounds. Uh, but Good Friday, I, I keep it pretty standard. Um, I learn new things all the time. Went to the Holy Land last year and learned a lot of new things. Um, that you'll hear tonight, but, but by and large, it's pretty much the same. And it, it really does mystify some people why Christians uh, continue to do this to ourselves. <laughs> why do we keep talking about the crucifixion? If, if the good stuff is coming on Sunday and we know it, why do we get sad and sort of fake ourselves out as if Jesus died and he's still on the cross or still in the tomb? Like, are, is this just an adventure in sadomasochism? Like, are we just here to like spiritually cut? Like, what are we doing here um, if Jesus rose? And that's a valid question. And I just think, I think experience has taught Christians over the years that if you just have Easter without Good Friday, the joy of Easter becomes more and more shallow a little more vacuous, meaningless. You don't understand the path that got you to that destination. And it's so important that we walk that path. And that's what we're here to do tonight. And to get there, I think it's always important at the beginning of a Good Friday service or sermon, in this case, to visualize who we're talking about here when we're talking about Jesus. So Jesus is often framed as like this mythological sort of angelic, semi-ghost kind of a figure. He's always like, 
mysteriously handsome and blonde and, and long-faced, but in a, in a joyful way and just like blue eyes and just kind of gazing off into the distance. Sometimes he's petting a sheep or something, I don't know, in the art that you see. And, and all of that is well and good, but, but we're not talking about some fantastical myth that was man-made. Jesus is universally attested to be a real man, to have been a historical figure who really left some footprints in his part of the world. Like he really lived. He really had friends, really had family that knew him very well. And he really was a Jewish rabbi who taught folks and had a big following toward the end of his life. And of course, uh, it didn't go well when the leaders got threatened by him. And we're gonna talk more about that tonight. But when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about a man who grew up with a peasant mom, a peasant dad, who had come into some money because they got some strange visitors when Jesus was two with their gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so I don't know if Jesus grew up poor or rich. I don't know. Um, but I knew his, I know his people were used to being poor and he was from a small town. He was the oldest sibling of at least six others who are mentioned in the gospels, at least four brothers, at least two sisters. And he was the oldest. We don't know much about Jesus's appearance. Uh, we don't know that he looked like the art that we're used to seeing uh, shows him to look. The Bible says nothing about Jesus's looks. And so what you're seeing on the screen right now are, are some examples of what archaeologists have estimated the average looking first century Middle Eastern Jewish man uh, to, to, uh, to have looked. This, this is the average these three, right? And there's some, there's some real variation here. Um, the middle guy is still kind of a looker. I don't know. Um, I'm confident enough in my, in my masculinity to say that. I, but, you know, the other two might explain how Jesus stayed single his whole life. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's mystery. But the fact that the Bible doesn't say anything about Jesus's appearance would lead you to believe that he was perfectly average looking. Because in the rest of the Bible, you're finding all kinds of clues about people that were really tall, Goliath. People that were really handsome, David. You know, women that were really beautiful. I mean, names Sarah, Rebecca, a lot of the women are described as really beautiful. Um, and some of the men are described as being really short, Zacchaeus, right? Like, if they have a distinguishing physical feature, the Bible writers tell you about it. And if Jesus had distinguishing features, believe me, we would know about it. And there's something oddly comforting about the fact that Jesus was probably really average looking. I don't know. If he was a little too handsome, I'm not sure I'd feel as comfortable. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just my insecurity. I don't know. I, I like the idea that he was just an average looking guy with an extraordinary message and an even more extraordinary mission. So uh, we're, we, we know that the average, the average first century Middle Eastern Jewish man stood about 5'4 five, four or 5'5. Five, five. You ever picture Jesus being 5'4 or 5'5? Five, five? probably about how tall he was. So I want you to imagine a real person as we talk about him tonight. One thing that I think is a common misnomer because Jesus is such a big deal to us is we assume he must have been a big deal in his lifetime. And that's not the case for most people. For his followers, sure, Jesus was a VIP and a celebrity and all that. But for anyone who mattered in the first century world, Jesus was just an ordinary nobody. And rabbis were building their followings and their platforms 
you know, they were a dime a dozen in Jesus's day. Jesus was nothing special to the Jewish elites or especially to the Roman elites. They didn't know who this guy was. They didn't know his name. Most of them, the Romans especially. And so the Jewish people that didn't know him just kept putting him back in his place. Isn't this the carpenter's son, they said? They knew Joseph and Mary, but they couldn't even say Joseph's name that would dignify Jesus too much. Isn't this the lowly carpenter's son? Of course it was. Jesus grew up as learning the trade of his father. Not really a carpenter. That's kind of a little bit of a language thing. There weren't many carpenters in the Middle East because wood is pretty scarce. There were some master carpenters because it was such a rare ability. And then there were some tradesmen who were unskilled workers who worked with wood sometimes. Jesus' occupation was actually a tecton, which was more of a builder, stonemason, construction worker. And so that might lend more uh, of an idea of what Jesus might have looked like. He was average looking, but I, I imagine someone who spent decades in the hot Judean sun, day in and day out for 10 hours plus a day, lifting you know, stones of limestone and swinging a mallet. I imagine that guy's probably not somebody you want to arm wrestle in front of your girlfriend. Like, I think that's, that goes without saying. I think Jesus was probably physically a very strong person, which is interesting when you look at all the things that he endured and the ways he allowed others at the end to manhandle him. Jesus was an ordinary man in the eyes of the Romans and the Jewish authorities, evidenced by the fact that he stood in line for half his life. Like like the rest of us, Jesus did a lot of waiting from his birth. Jesus' parents waited in line to circumcise him at the temple, just like all the other Jewish parents did. At his baptism, Jesus waited in line to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, in the Jordan River. Jesus waited in line at the synagogue in, in, in uh, Nazareth to be able to teach for the first time in that synagogue. Jesus was always waiting in line, including up to the point where he was crucified. And sometimes we act like Jesus and those two guys beside him were the only ones the Romans ever crucified, as if it weren't a daily occurrence. Listen, it was. Jesus waited in line even to be crucified because it was such a common practice in those days, y'all. So the Romans did not invent crucifixion. It had been around for a thousand years before Jesus was ever put on a cross. The Assyrians crucified people. The Babylonians crucified people. There's even a little bit of scant evidence that Jewish leaders crucified a couple of people before Jesus walked the earth. But crucifixion wasn't always what happened to Jesus. It it evolved. And the Romans, my God, the Romans, they perfected it. So the Romans took an ancient practice, which in antiquity didn't even always result in the death of the crucified person. Crucifixion began more like um, putting someone in the stocks. You know what that is? I mean, they would put somebody up on a cross and tie them with ropes. And, and there's evidence that there was a peg you could sit on even. Like you weren't nailed. You just sat up there embarrassed with your crime written on a sign above your head. And a lot of people were crucified and then they lived to tell the tale because they didn't go through everything that Jesus did. Now, um, you know, it had evolved to an execution technique by the time the Romans picked it up. But the Romans, I mean, they're nothing. They, they, they were nothing 
if not barbaric and efficient. And they found very barbaric and ever-increasing efficient ways, increasingly efficient ways to crucify people. And to do so with the added sort of goal of, of, of deterring future crime. So it was a crime deterrent, and it was a state-sanctioned terror device. And the Romans, I mean, by the time they were done crucifying, which was the third century, or the 300s, fourth century AD, when Constantine, the first Christian uh, um, emperor, outlawed crucifixion, interestingly enough, by that time, they were crucifying people upside down in weird like shapes and positions and just whatever they could do to make it weirder and more awful, they did it. And, and Jesus waited in line for that, just like he waited in line for everything else. And we're gonna talk tonight about what exactly Jesus went through, not for the sake of just feeling awful, but for the sake of preparing our hearts for what's coming later this weekend. So this passage I'm going to read is from the Gospel of Matthew. This is uh, chapter 27, verses 27 through 50. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him, and then they led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. Now, Simon of Cyrene is, is mentioned in all four Gospels. Um, Cyrene was a place in Lib modern-day Libya, and this man was from a small Jewish community that had, had scattered there. And Simon's two sons are mentioned in two of the Gospels. They're Rufus and Alexander. Rufus is mentioned as a, one of the first-generation Christians in the book of Acts. And recently they found a bone box from dated to 70 AD um, in a Cyrenian uh, 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 cemetery. Uh, and this bone box, this ossuary says, uh, this, here lies Alexander, son of Simon. So it's a very interesting little connection here, all, of this, all these pieces coming together. They compelled Simon to carry his cross. And when they crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. They, they didn't really, I don't think they really cast lots. I think this is a Jewish understanding of what they really did. And then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, which was sedition. There's only one king in Rome, right? Unless... For whatever reason, the Roman emperor says otherwise. Like, yeah, Herod, you can call yourself a king. It's fine. He's not really a king. You know, that kind of thing. Unless it's okayed by Rome, no one else can call themselves a king. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. 
At about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge attached to a stick and filling it with sour wine, gave it to him to drink. And then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. It's a, obviously an awful, awful scene, especially when you consider the man who was subjected to this treatment and the things he stood for, the people he stood for, the way that he loved. A common question among like any, any historians or scholars when it comes to crucifixion is why did Jesus die so quickly? Crucifixion was supposed to put someone on display and shame them and really hurt them for as long as possible. So there's historical evidence of people surviving crucifixions for up to seven days. So why did Jesus die in six hours? It's because Jesus got the worst peripheral treatment possible before he was ever put on the cross. I mean, Jesus was put through all kinds of things that not every victim of crucifixion was put through. And it begins with this punishment called the, the scourge or, or um, the flogging that you heard. They, they beat him with what's called a, a Roman flagrum. And the flagrum, uh, <laughs> I, uh, for years, every year I would buy a flagrum, a leather, like multi-lace, like, whip to show at Good Friday, and then I would give it away on Easter Sunday. But then that just got really weird. The world's too weird to be shopping for leather whips anymore. So I can't, I'm not, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to get in trouble or something. So anyway, I don't buy those anymore. You have to use your imagination here. The, the Roman flagrum, uh, if you know like the phrase, the cat of nine tails, cat with nine tails, that's another kind of a word or phrase for it. At the, at the end of each strip of leather, they would tie in something brutal. They would lace in a shard of pottery or some lead or some glass or some bone or some rock. And then these strong Roman soldiers would just one lashing at a time with all their strength, tear into the flesh of the victim and then, and then pull back. An absolutely excruciating experience. And the only thing I could possibly relate to it is if you're old enough, like I am just barely, my generation is the last generation that was ever whipped in school. And I hear some feedback. I don't know what yours, I, I feel like I'm touching a nerve. But that's, if it happened to you, <laughs> you know. You know that feeling after the one, after the first whip. There's this moment that feels like an eternity because you know the next one's coming and you just don't want to feel that same pain again and just to think of what this must have been like for Jesus between lashings up to 39 times. I just can't even fathom that. I mean, just it's my Jesus. To think of him in that kind of pain just, just wrecks me. But it explains in part how, why he survived for such a short time on the cross. He was already bleeding out before he even got there. He was already in anaphylactic shock from the pain and the nerve damage and everything. After that, they, they uh, put a, a robe, a scarlet robe on his back like a king, which I'm sure felt great on those wounds. 
as the, the fabric congealed to the wound, and, and then they put a reed or a, a staff in his hand, and they pressed a crown of thorns down on his head, and more agony and pain, and then they, they pretended to honor him. They knelt before him and called him their king, laughing the whole time. The story said that, that they cast lots for his clothes, and this is true in part. I think, again, this is a, a Jewish interpretation of what was really happening. It's very common that the Roman soldiers responsible for crucifixions would play something called the king's game, where the, each one had a piece on this board you see, game board, that is etched into some limestone. This is in the Roman soldiers' barracks, uncovered in the city of Jerusalem. This might have been the very board they played uh, on for Jesus' clothes. They would um, play a game that, that uh, determined which soldier got to punish or humiliate the victim in which way, including which one would get to take home the trophy, the clothes of the victim. It says they, put his, they took the, the robe off and they put his clothes back on him and then they put the cross on his back, which again, just imagine what he's already been through by this point, physically how he's feeling. And they put the cross on his back, un, unlike what you've seen probably in some passion plays and things like that. It's highly unlikely they put the whole cross on his back. Again, wood was scarce and the Romans were efficient. It is more, much more likely, as they did in other cities, that in Jerusalem they had a, crucifixion row, where they just left the vertical posts planted in the ground for reuse. So the vertical posts stayed, stayed put along a busy street where they crucified people, and the horizontal post is, is what Jesus carried, still probably around close to 100 pounds. I don't know how, much, how long you could carry a 100-pound crossbeam after being uh, beaten as he was um, with all kinds of reactions happening in your body, that pain, that shock. But Jesus didn't last all the way to Golgotha where they were taking him. That was murderer's row, right? That's where they crucified Golgotha, the place of the skull. It's still there. You go to the Holy Land with us one of these years, you'll see it. It's inside the church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is the, it's supposed to be, the, the highlight of that is that the tomb is there. The actual tomb where they, where they, put Jesus on the preparation table. It's, it's all well-attested historically, very likely accurate. And, uh, and the, the place where they crucified him was, was not far from there. Um, but Jesus didn't make it all the way. They had to ask Simon to help Jesus carry the cross. When they finally arrived to Golgotha, it was time for them to actually attach Jesus to the cross. And uh, they did this with nails. They didn't use nails on everyone who was crucified. They used nails on Jesus. And I'm sorry, this gets a little graphic. I'm, I just think this is important that we know what our Lord went through. Wasn't probably nails through the hands that would not have held anyone up and they wanted people to last up there on the cross. It's more likely that Jesus was, his arms wrapped around the cross, either this way or... Uh, think about this, either this way or this way, and the nails driven through the wrist so that there's enough bone structure to maintain, to maintain his weight on the cross. And um, the word for hand and wrist is interchangeable in Greek. You see this in the rest of the New Testament. You'll see lines like 
the, the, the handcuffs fell off of Peter's hands. Well, you don't, put, you don't put handcuffs on hands. You put them on wrists, right? And so, anyway, the shackles fell off of Peter's wrists, but they use the same word. So it's very likely he was put like this on the cross, nailed through the back like this. And then uh, they took him after they attached those nails and they lifted up that horizontal beam and they attached it somehow or hung it on the vertical beam that was already in place. Made sure that sign said, this is king of the Jews, his act of sedition. And, and there was no peg for Jesus to sit on. That would have been nice because now he's bearing all of his weight on his wounds. And the next thing that it says is that they, they put the nails in his feet. And this was a mystery to many because no one knew how you nail feet to a cross. It seems awkward. Do you do one nail through the top of both? I don't, we've always heard that, that uh, three nails plus one man equals four given, or I don't know what the phrase was, but like we always heard three nails. But historical evidence, again, archaeologists are coming through for us here and they're finding things all the time, like in a bone box in Jerusalem in the first century, from the first century, they found this ankle bone with a nail going through it, a crucifixion nail going through it. But instead of going top down, it's coming in from the side. And so it seems that the Romans would, Nail both feet from the sides. Again, the pain, I can't even, I just can't even imagine it. The bearing down on that, on the, on, on the bone, on the nails that my Jesus going through this, I just can't. I don't want to think about it, but I know this is the path that takes us to Easter. After they nailed him to the, through the cross, through his wrists and through his ankles, um, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. This has always been a mystery, right? Why would Jesus say he was forsaken? Did did the father forget the son? Did, what's going on here theologically? It's a mind bender. Until you understand what Jesus is doing, it can really mess with you. Was Jesus forsaken by God? Is Jesus a different person than God? I thought Jesus was God. Well, there's more happening here. Jesus isn't just being emotional or sentimental here. Jesus is quoting scripture. This is a direct quote from Psalm 22, where where. David wrote about his enemies and to understand why Jesus would quote this Psalm, it helps you to understand who else was there when he quoted Psalm 22. It wasn't just his mom and John, they were there. A few other friendly onlookers were there, but Jesus's enemies were there too. They outnumbered his friends more than likely. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees were there. Why did they show up to his crucifixion? because they ordered it. Not directly, but they plotted and they schemed along with Judas to make sure that Jesus didn't only end up dead, but that he ended up on a cross. That's why the charges against Jesus weren't blasphemy or heresy, but sedition and treason, because they knew that charges of sedition and treason against Rome, against the emperor, wound up with 
the treasonous one on the cross. Why did Jesus' enemies want him on a cross? Because of what the Bible itself says way back in Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23, where clearly it says, the word of God says, anyone who hangs from a tree or a pole, anyone who hangs is under God's curse. And so, after years of battling, matching wits with this Jesus and losing followers to this Jesus and losing power to this Jesus, these religious leaders wanted at last to see Jesus hanging from a tree so that they could stand there and point to their Bibles and say, look, we tried to tell you, you had the wrong man, you followers of Jesus. This isn't the Messiah. It can be the Messiah. How can the Messiah of God die under God's curse? This isn't the one. And that's why Jesus quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I doubt that he just said it. No first century Jew would have said Psalm 22. You sang it. It was a song. And I think he fought and struggled to get what little breath he could as he was asphyxiating on the cross to be able to just force out the tune. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To trigger the muscle memory in the minds of these Pharisees who memorized the Psalms. To be Pharisees, you had to know the Psalms by heart. And so the memory that they had would have been triggered immediately to to automatically recall the rest of that Psalm. If you heard, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you were a Pharisee, you would have immediately remembered the rest, which goes like this. We have this from, wow, that's small up there. I'm gonna read it in mine, all right? So, this is from Psalm 22, um, and, and it, uh, this is the rest of what it says in verses 16 through 24. Why are you so far from helping me? For dogs, dogs are all around me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People who stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. For my clothing, they cast lots. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried out to him. Jesus wasn't just feeling forsaken. Maybe there was a shred of that going on. What's really happening here is Jesus is clapping back against the villains who put him on the cross, the ones who wanted him not just dead, but discredited. He's, they're pointing at him and, and looking at their Bible saying, see, see, we told you, he's dying under a curse. He can't be the one. And Jesus quotes this Psalm to suggest what curse? for he has not despised the affliction of the afflicted. The end of the Psalm says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ends with this beautiful joy. You don't despise me when I'm afflicted. You don't cast me aside. What curse? The curse is broken. The fact that Jesus had the presence of mind to even say such a thing that would trigger such memories in the minds of his enemies, it just makes me love him more. In, a, in, a, in a, such a dire and painful situation like this, as he, he hung there just naked, exposed, vulnerable in pain, 
They didn't, they didn't hang them up high like you see in the movies and on a hill far away like you sang in that song if you grew up in church. They hung them at eye level and in full view of a busy street. And Jesus' mama was just a breath away when they talked to one another. They didn't have to scream because he was up 20 feet high. It was right there. It was vulnerable and raw. And even with all of that in mind, Jesus still quoted this psalm in a way that really shut his enemies up. In the midst of all of this, he had physical needs. It's understandable why dehydration would be an issue, why he said, I thirst, right? In every gospel, as he's hanging on the cross, he says, I thirst, and they give him something to drink. And all four gospels uh, point to him being given something like wine, sour wine, or uh, uh, vinegar. And, and in a couple of the gospels, he rejects it at first because it's gross, and then he takes it anyway, either because they force him to or because he's just that thirsty. And this is a mystery to, to me as well, not the, that he was thirsty, but just how they gave him something to drink, a sponge on a stick. Who, who has that sitting around? Who brings a sponge on the end of a stick to a public execution? It didn't make sense to anyone until archaeologists began uh, excavating more and more Roman cities. And what we found, what they found and, and showed the rest of us, is that the Romans, when they took over a major city like Jerusalem, they would transition a large gathering space like a theater into a public latrine for the use of Roman citizens and soldiers and others. And this is a, a, a Jerusalem theater that was transitioned away from, just, from being a theater to being a public latrine. And so they would carve out the holes on the top of the seats and the front of the seats. The front of the seat was for sanitation purposes. So I don't want to get too far into that. Y'all might not have had dinner yet or whatever, but you can probably use your imaginations. Where things get really weird is when you know that, that in these latrines, they almost universally have found some kind of insig insignia placard or something that has said something to the effect of, please return sponge to this location upon use. And there's, there's, they've discovered these placards and they've discovered like calcified sticks with calcified sponges on the end of them or, or near them. And it becomes very clear that in these Roman latrines, they used, they shared communal sponges that they would use through the front opening to clean themselves up. And then they would return the sponge into the vat of some kind of disinfectant. And y'all see where I'm going with this. What were the common disinfectants in the first century? Wine, vinegar, wine mixed with gall, sour wine, the things you find in the crucifixion story. So there's really no other competing explanation for where a sponge on a stick came from at a public execution or why it was dipped in sour wine or vinegar instead of just water than the absolutely horrific, gut-wrenching, disgusting idea that Roman soldiers carried these things as part of their equipment in their pack. And they had some disinfectant with them at all times for sanitary purposes. And they're giving Jesus something to drink wasn't an act of mercy like maybe we thought. 
It was just one more disgusting gesture. Eat our, you fill in the blank. And Jesus rejected it at first until either they made him take it or he just took it. Their toilet sponge. And those were the guys. After they put the nails through his body, after they had beaten him and scourged him and mocked him and taken his clothes and left him naked in front of his mama and everybody else on the cross, and after they had written him that he's the king of the Jews, and after they had given him their toilet sponge with vinegar or wine on it, it was these guys that Jesus looked at and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's our Jesus. It's these guys, and including, I think, the Pharisees and the chief priests and others that came to just criticize and condemn. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because not only was the curse broken for Christ on the cross, through Christ on the cross, the curse is broken for every sinner, the worst sinner. There is no curse. Even though to this day, we continue to live and think as though the curse still exists. And if you don't believe me, I know you, I know you too well. I know myself too well. There are men in the room right now still living like the curse exists. As though we're cursed because we're just not hacking it. We, we, we're just not providing like we should. We're just, we just don't look the way we should. Women too, feeling the weight bearing down on them, this unbearable weight of their own expectations or the expectations of others that you have internalized, that you will never live up to. Young people are experiencing this great despair right now of this fear of missing out on something, this, this feeling like they're not living the life they're supposed to live or should be living, and, and the weight of those expectations is heavy. And even before COVID, it was heavy, heavy for all of us, because long before somebody told us we had to start wearing masks to church, we were all wearing masks already, covering up something acting like we're happy, got it all figured out. How you doing, George? I'm fine, Jay, how you doing? You're falling apart inside, pretending like it's a tea party in your childhood, pretending to be someone you're not. Why? Because we live as though the curse is still in effect. But Jesus put the curse in the grave. The cross of Jesus Christ cannot be defeated because the cross itself is the epitome of defeat. And Jesus took it and he took it down with him. Not so you would feel guilty at what he had to do for you, but that on Sunday morning, you'll feel the same joy he felt, the joy that compelled him to take the cross in the first place, the joy of real freedom freedom from the curse that you've sworn you're under, the curse that has long been broken. This is why we gather tonight to prepare our hearts for what's coming Sunday morning. Because Jesus rose not just from the grave, Jesus rose victorious from defeat so that the victory could be yours today and forever.
pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this service, for this time of reflection. We pray that our hearts would be soft and receptive to the leading of your spirit, the conviction of your spirit, Lord. Because we've spent a lot of our lives running away. We've spent a lot of our lives fleeing, hiding, masking, concealing. Right now, I pray we would have the courage just to be real with you as you were real with us to the cross. In your victory, Lord, somehow we found our victory. When you broke the curse, it was for us all. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.